to bring in a priestess. We called it the veil priestess, which was an idea that we had to balance the two priests. They're always here for the rest of the episode. <laughs> and we have a wonderful priestess that brought us some points that are interesting to discuss or revisit maybe from the previous episodes. Well, you were saying about open circles and that some covens have open circles for initiates or seekers before they go through the doors. And um, something that I actually wanted to ask about was soirees. How how do you feel about the soirees? Because that's something that we do in our coven sometimes, not as frequently lately now that we've got a couple of standing working members, but we had a lot of people attending there and I found it was quite a good way to sort of have like a pre-interview, if that makes sense, to kind of suss out, are they serious about this? Are they just looking for another notch on their belt if they've been initiated into quite a few other things? Those sorts of things. Did you go to any soirees, Michael? I did not. I did not go to any soirees. So I found my initiating coven um, through, what was that old website, uh, Witchbox, which is now um, defunct. But I know, right, that's an Alexandrian tradition to hold these soirees. I don't think it was like as formal as we made it now. I think they they just hold <laughs> meetings, <laughs> public <laughs> meetings, or, or people could come in and, and they could just have that. And this was held by Alex and Maxine uh, in the 70s. And of course, the famous pub meetings and uh, the coven would just meet in the pub before and after the rituals. And it was a day in the week that they would have, Alex would have a session of question and answers and people would come in. It is said that uh, the door would be open and there would be people in the stairs, you know, listening to him in the of the room would be full. So I think that that's, that's the idea. And Maxim did uh, with the Temple of the Mother. I think it's a wonderful way of people coming in and you know them or meet them. But most of all, I think it is about them asking questions to you and, and make sense a little bit if that's for them or you also to look at them. Isn't that your experience when you do it? Well, pretty much where I started, funny enough, I also found uh, the coven that I'm currently with on Witchbox before it closed down. Ah. Um, and then we attended a few soirees together, and it was just really a place to learn, for lack of a better word, what the flavor of Alexandrian witchcraft was. Because at the time, I was very interested in the craft, but I didn't have the knowledge of which books to read. And, you know, once you've gone over the 5,000... 10,000, 2 million books of spells. You're just kind of like, I'm looking for something with a bit more meat, but I don't know what. And um, that was where I got told, okay, well, read what witches do, read Fire Child, read these books, because this will give you a good idea of what our witchcraft is sort of geared towards. And that I found really, really helped. And I attended quite a few, actually, before I made the decision to request for initiation. So it's it really was a very friendly atmosphere, very laid back. There was wine, there was cheese. Everybody had a chance to ask their questions and have the priest answer them. And yeah, it was it was actually a very lovely experience without giving away too much, if that makes sense. I think it can really, if done well, set people on the right path to be able to learn what they need before they know if this is right for them. How is it now being on the other side? So you were you were going into, so now you're hosting it as well. So how how is that for you? Uh, very interesting. There's a lot of colorful characters that come through sometimes where we kind of go, mm, yeah, no. But um, we actually had a few initiates come from those soirees as well. And it's just, I think it's a very lovely place for the priesthood that are looking if they request for initiation, it's a good way to be able to see them not in an interview sense, because let's say people are always on their best behavior and get the right answers when mm. you interview them for things. You know, it's always, yes, I'm dedicated. I have vocation. But when they get into sort of that conversation mode, you can start more kind of sussing out what is actually going on then. Also, it really helps setting people 
straight on some questions that they have, you know, like, is it all sex orgies? Is it this? Is it that? And you're like, mm, no, not exactly. And setting some people on other paths, if that makes sense. If it's not quite right for them, we can at least suggest, okay, well, if you're looking for something along this line, maybe take a look at this. Or maybe have a look at this practitioner if you want something else. So, yeah, other than that, absolutely hair-raising being on that side for the first time. It's it's a very big shift going from listening to actually having to be able to answer the questions. You know them, but it's always always a little bit harrowing the first time. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and you never know what they're going to ask. It's always a surprise. <laughs> it is always a surprise. But that's the same as some of the initiation requests that we got. It was, you You were the one saying you got an email or something going, initiation, please, or something along those lines. We've had some some scary ones as well, but you go, is that how you write an email to someone you don't know? Yeah. That's, that's terrifying. <laughs> how it do you is. do that? It is. And this is why, Michael, you said, I am expecting an email beginning with dear so-and-so. Exactly. <laughs> there needs to be some formality. And if this is your first impression, it has to be a good one. And then I have a question, like, how do you get the word out for a soiree? We have a Coven Facebook page mm -hmm. that we post some things on for people that are looking for possible covens or initiation into the Alexandrian tradition. And we would usually post up on there, we are having a soiree on such and such a night at such and such a time. Bring one, bring good cheer, reach out to us if you're interested, and then people that we're interested would reach out and they'd obviously be given further details because nobody in this day and age is putting the address online for strangers to rock out. <laughs> yes, and this is, you know, you have to remember this was done in Alex's, in Maxine's apartment in, in, in London. So this was, it was open door. It does speak on your point, Kerrigan, about like proselytizing. It's sort of a, a, a tightrope to walk in terms of how much do you quote unquote advertise uh, and how can someone find you? I think that it's a very nice way of doing it. This goes into other occasions, for instance, that you have all over uh, the pagan world and uh, the esoteric world where you have pub moots and you have mm. gatherings and you have all of those things. They have different names, but really they're uh, pretty much the same. But a soiree, I think it's a little different because it is really for you to go to meet initiates and to meet people that they're connected with the path that you are interested in or uh, just generally, because sometimes, you know, not all of the people that come to soirees will, will ask for initiation. On, on the contrary, there's probably 90, 95% of them mm. not. Um, but uh, I think that it's a wonderful way to give them the opportunity to ask you questions. We did this in Boston for a while. We tried several things. We went to a public place and we hosted in our own living room. I think the uh, living room, it's a little bit more intimate. It's very interesting to receive people that have no clue. You know? yeah. But you will ask people a couple of questions before they come in, you know, not to come in on the at the door, but, you know, uh, when they contact you. And they can even respond to some questions about why are they coming, things like that. But uh, in the 70s was pretty much relaxed. You know, let's, let's get together and go to Alex and Maxine's. And, and many people that went there stayed there. <laughs> <They're coming laughs> at the time. But it, it it is very interesting because I think that this is needed I think that the human contact is needed. People need to be face-to-face. -face. We're, we're in the uh, era where there's a lot of internet, there's a lot of virtual things, uh, and the craft needs a little bit more of contact with people one-on-one -on -one in this regard. It's nice to know that it's still a practice that's upheld yes. you know, in general, because, yeah. it, I mean, obviously it's not something we do often. It's not every Friday, but... When, when we feel that there's a need for it, when we've been having a lot of questions that are posted or, you know, emailed through to us, we'll say, oh, well, let's have a soiree. They can all come through and they can have that contact because, as you say, that contact is super important. Yeah. There's no point just answering an email and saying, you know, oh, well, this, and then, you know, nothing ever develops for the person from there. So if they're truly interested, it's I think it's a great way to just have that contact, as you say. Mm-hmm. 
What is the most challenging part of this particular soiree for you? I would say the most challenging part is having people come through that are so on edge about what witchcraft is. It's almost as though they, they want to come through for a scandal, if that makes sense. Oh, interesting. They're interested, but they don't want to be interested, but they do. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a, it, it's a very weird thing to kind of suss out there. And also, like I say, just some very colorful characters upon occasion that come through and you're like, oh, okay, is that it? I'm glad you think that's what the craft is. At the end of the day, it hasn't been too difficult at all. I must say it's actually been a very lovely experience when we have had them. That's very interesting. Uh, I think I think it's very important for people to get together, and and this comes, you know, the I I must say that the soiree is uh, first I heard of it was uh, from Maxine, and it it was in re in regards to what you know they were doing at the time, but you do have a soiree now. For instance, Maxine did one in London, and it was in a public place. And she, you know, people were asking questions and uh, things. So it, it took a little bit of a different uh, shape, I think, the project. Um, and now it's it's used by uh, a lot of people. I think it's very interesting and very a wonderful, you know, way of of contacting people and people contacting us. It's really good. Are you going to do one, Michael? <laughs> Funny you should ask. Yes. So I am, I am planning one probably after spring, yeah. but it, again, it is like, where do I get the word out just either right. on my website or beyond? And then of course, where would I hold it? Probably in a public space, which is, you know, safer. You have to meet people. Uh, and then even just to meet people in your local community who may never, as you said, ask for initiation, but there are lots of magic workers out there with interesting ideas. And, and there is, there will be a couple of people that will come always. Yeah. And, and and you will have those, and then maybe you will have one at your home because you will now trust these people and you know them because you have done like, I don't know, five or six or seven. Yeah. And, and then they eventually are the ones who are probably going to ask or, or with more interest because yeah. they are more regulars. I actually wanted to speak about Alexandrian uh, priests and priestesses that have to work solitary. So for instance, let's say I go over and get initiated i bring the tradition back and then i'm now working the magic obviously while waiting for a coven to come through so i know something that's usually done is the um invocation upon the altars and things like that for our, our respective deities if we can put it that way without giving away too much um but you know what's what other i suppose thoughts would you have on that that uh, solitary working that needs to be done for a short period of time and also how it would affect polarity in the person themselves? That's a great question because it happens, right? It happens when people leave one coven or they've moved um, and then they're in search of another. So how do you continue your practice? And I think upon initiation, at least speaking from my own personal experience, initiation changed my own personal practice outside of coven work. And I think the bottom line is that it's important to practice, right? And and to continue to practice. Uh, and I think you can, in many ways, modify our practices and rituals uh, to do it solitary. Is this mm. the best way? No, because a witch really can't practice alone. Um, in terms of polarity, oh, you absolutely, I don't know, how, how much do I want to give away? Um, <clears throat> It does. It absolutely affects polarity. Uh, and I think this is one of those reasons why it's so important to have uh, men and women in your working coven. Uh, and you do feel very much that imbalance and you do develop a really deep yearn for the other. Uh, and there are ways to fix that. I think that's all I'll say about that. Um, but there are ways to rebalance. But I guess the bottom line is continue your work while you are in search of another uh, coven, say another, another home. What do you think, Kerrigan? I think just because you are alone, you're not going to cease to be Alexandrian or cease to practice. Uh, you know, of course, the practice is very clear. It's between 
a priest and a priestess. Absolutely. Uh, however, because you are alone, your work will change as your practice will change as well. It, it doesn't mean that you have to modify per se the rites themselves. You can adapt them if you want to. Better uh, word. Yeah, adapt. Yeah. Better word. So adapt to accommodate that particular practice. But, you know, then again, I think that consciousness of practice, I think that's the best way to go about Consciousness of practice. If you are alone and you want to worship, you can absolutely cast a circle and do all of the things that you would do with some limitations. And the work is going to be different. Maybe it will be becoming a little bit more hermetic rather than like sterilize the ritualistics. Maybe you are going to focus more on another part of the work. Uh, so it, it, it doesn't really, it's not going to be exactly the same. The impact that that would have in polarity is very interesting because this takes us a little bit into this whole story about um, working with uh, opposite polarity and working with uh, same polarity goes into this whole thing because you're alone and of course you are of a polarity or you will emanate or vibrate in a specific polarity more than other and of course, that will have an impact because the work itself, the structure of the ritual is asking for balance. And of course, it will, it will get that balance out of the other polarity. And, and that's how it's designed. That's why we, we have all of these things designed ritualistically, designed like this, because it's all about balance. It's all about polarity and it's all about creation. But, uh, Sometimes people hold on to this idea, oh, because I'm a solitary, I can't be an Alexander, or because I'm a solitary, I can't really do Alexandrian witchcraft, which is not true because, you know, uh, your basics are there. You are still doing the casting, and you're still doing the techniques, you're still using. It's just intelligently really changing the nature of the work. The work might be a little bit more erratic, it might be become a little bit more centered in other aspects of um, and celebrating. I mean, everybody has, I have my personal um, devotional work. So I think that it shifts, the work shifts. The same thing happens, for instance, when you have a coven that suddenly it loses all the priestesses and it's all men. Or, uh, a, a, or a coven that loses all men and then it becomes a priestess-only coven. And, and this is very interesting because people panic. They said, oh my God, what, what should I do? What should we do? Because now it's like all men and all women. And it's not to panic. They're, they're priestesses and they're priests. It's the work that has to shift into another type of work, which is, of course, you know, a more emetic work that could be worked together in a group, but it's a different work. It's not really the same one. We're not going to adapt, um, you know, Oh, okay. So it's all women. Now one of the women is going to become a man and or a priest and or representing a priest or um because we're not a war. This is not an emergency. <laughs> yeah. You see what I mean? So not really that. So and and of course, you know, if if it is not an emergency, then let's let's be intelligent and and shift the work into another direction that could continue the progression of the spiritual progression so we can evolve the same way it's just that the work has taken another tone i say to my students you know you you were expected to work this alone there are certain things that we have to work alone um to develop that that thing or that particular piece um and there there's natural work that comes up but there the work itself it's parallel to another work which is the work of the coven which is the work of the whole group which is different it's a different work it's, it's very interesting to hear it from a different perspective as well because as you know the um, high priest of my coven had that sort of experience mm -hmm. um, when he brought the tradition back and was working for a while before i joined the coven and it's just very interesting hearing that because it's obviously not something I've had to go through other than doing my own personal rituals, the, the devotional, the offerings, things like that. Mm -hmm. And I must say, it is extremely jarring the first time that you start doing your own personal workings outside of the coven when you're used to that coven setting. 
and that polarity and having all those things built and helped with. So it was just something that once I started working on my own a little bit as well, it, I had a lot more sympathy for um, the solitary practitioner, if that makes sense. It's experienced in different ways, I think, because if you work alone, and of course you have to, if you don't have anyone else, it's quite difficult. And this is circumstantial, right? So the, the mm. if somebody come, comes from another country, they go there, they're initiated, and then they go back to their own country. And then of course, you know, now they're alone. Uh, and this is always what I, I thought that it would be a good idea. It would be if more than one person would be initiated when they go back. Even if they are first degrees, they can still work together. And that's really good. It's a good thing to have another person. If you don't have anyone, the work is different. It's a different kind of work. And it was really kind of difficult to set up this work. So the circumstances of the situation just asked for it. And to begin to work solitary in a uh, tradition that it's basically made for two, at least, it's quite difficult. And sometimes it has some repercussions in terms of polarity that it's kind of uh, a little bit difficult to overcome. But it, it is possible. And we, had, <laughs> we actually had the example, very good one, actually, of that happening. And that's your... Uh, that's your high priest, I think. So it's really interesting because uh, I want to have him here as well so that we can talk about this a little bit more because it's his experience. I can't tell you how happy we were when you turned up. <laughs> <laughs> Probably about as happy as I was to be initiated. Yes. <laughs> I also think too, like I think the, you know, the height of the pandemic made everyone solitary. Yeah. for a while right and i think that also added in like to your point kerrigan this sort of flexibility of okay what other kind of workings can we do even though we can't actually physically meet i don't know if you know this but i worked with gypsy ravish for uh, a long time and we were in the pandemic and she said you know i have this thing that i want to do online i want to bring people together would you help me and i said yes but i have a con I have some conditions. The first condition is if we're going to do this, it has to be very good, yep. very well thought. Um, and what we're giving them ha has to have a very good quality. And of course, it's going to be hermetic because it's going to be uh, inner workings of the individual that is totally isolated somewhere on earth. Uh, and this has to have an impact on the individual development. So let's come up with something that could be, and of course, I, I, I don't know if our listeners, seekers listening to us, we do work a lot hermetics and we work those inner workings very, very um, frequently. So I thought it was a good thing because this was a public thing. This was not really a Justin Alexander, this was a public thing, but I thought if we can bring good quality hermetics so that the individual can work inner work, uh, it would be fantastic because then they would come out of it, not just like a Zoom meeting, but it actually had an impact on the spiritual piece of each of the individual differently, right? Because every person is different and the impact is different in each of the individuals in their own state of development. So I said to her, you know, this is what I want to do. And said, okay, so that's what we did. We did uh, uh, online Zoom thing for the Sabbath. And each Sabbath, I would have an inner working of Vermetics for those who were listening to us. Next one would actually be the uh, same-sex initiation that you were discussing the last time around. And it was part of that polarity that I was discussing because to have a, a bit of a, a personal experience with it before I joined the craft I was quite the tomboy and put it that way and the profound effect that initiation had on me as a person and kind of healing that balance in myself I'm I'm just very concerned as to why people would want to remove that dichotomy from the craft you know, without necessity, obviously, of, of all, all the priests left the coven while working solitary. But for the initiation, I, I'm just quite struggling to understand 
what would be the reason for that. And it's it's also just come down to something, and this is kind of the seed that I wanted to discuss bringing this up, um, along with the craft must change you, you must not change the craft, and those sorts of practices is if somebody has been working the craft and they have come to the realizations, because let's face it, as much as we can go, you know, I'm an Alexandrian, the, the practices that you do, the rituals that you run, the sabbats, the esbats, all of that is supposed to reveal deeper meanings to you. And if those meanings have been revealed, and if you've been working the craft, why would you want to change that and remove those meanings for new initiates? We're going to talk a little bit more about this in another episode because we are going to touch it again. I think you just focused on one thing that I think that we didn't actually talk about this, uh, Michael, in the other one, which was why would you deprive people of, or why would you just change for the sake of change just because you say that it's evolving, but is it evolving in the right direction? That's my question. But anyway, so it, it really is comes down to there is a system that was put in place that it worked for, I don't know, maybe 40 years, right? I think it's just purely accommodation. I'm not sure if, if there is any sound uh, occult reason for this. People would say, well, same-sex initiation works the same way and it's exactly the same and people have the same experiences and people have the same, and it takes. There is this whole thing about taking, right? The initiation took. Uh, and it takes, it takes, it takes. Well, that's wonderful for those individuals, but our system is very clear, and it was clear since the beginning, and Maxine is very clear about this and how Alex actually thought about it as well. He always said, you know, and she said he worked with uh, uh, groups of only men, but he was conscious that this was not witchcraft. But there's other traditions that could accommodate that. And actually, the whole tradition was built up on that particular way. So it why uh, change mm -hmm. something that it's so fundamental, which is the initiation? I, 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 I agree with both of you. Uh, and I don't understand why they are changing it. If I have to boil it down, I would say it's political and it responds very much to the times in which we are living. So uh, where we are advocates of inclusivity on every level and I'm not saying that I'm not an advocate of inclusivity I have to put in a have to put in that caveat it's also sort of guised with this idea that well we're more evolved in our understanding of polarity mm -hmm. and that the masculine and the feminine uh, dwell within us and our goal is for union and we already have that uh, union within and I guess that I don't know. I guess that would be their primary argument. And as for depriving an initiate of experiencing the other, because that's what I think is so important here. I think there are many, many people, and I could be wrong, I don't know this statistically, that like this idea in the sense of, sure, why does it matter if a woman initiates me? Why does it matter if it's another man that initiates me? Why does it matter if it's a non-binary individual who initiates me? And again, because they don't have that understanding of how polarity on this level works and, and not an occult understanding either, like, you know, as above, so below, uh, we are reflecting something in the universe in terms of the system that we are working with in terms of male and female. And I always bring up this point is that there are hundreds of traditions that you can partake in that do not do cross-sex initiation. You know, the Cabot tradition is one of those. Uh, and, or if you want all same sex, there's, there's those traditions uh, as well. So I don't know if you, many people just want the moniker, the title of Alexandrian, uh, and, but then change the practice to something that's almost unrecognizable. And for your point, Kerrigan, for what benefit? So what does it actually do? Magically, I haven't experienced, so I don't, I don't know. I guess I would have to be proven wrong. Uh, in terms of how that actually works magically. I think there is a attempt to sanitize everything, accommodate to the individual ego, not the magical ego, I'm talking about the mundane ego. And there is an attempt to the point that it goes into extremes of 
our interpretation of divinity does not have to be gender associated. Therefore, let's take all of that out. Let's talk about the gods being just uh, essences or forces. Uh, let's not give them any kind of polarity associated with them so that we don't. So we're, we're going to call them something else. We're going to direct uh, our energy and relate with them in this way of a non-defined, undescript, completely bland of definition so that we can be again, political. I think it's political. And I think that it's lack of understanding. And of course, you know, the, the, there is this whole thing about, oh, yes, but Kabbalah. So this is something that has been studied in lace by all of the Kabbalists. And we're not Kabbalists, we're witches. But our consciousness of this is very specific. Alex brought that and Maxine to the craft as well. Why would you want to be an Alexandrian if you're not going to do what Alexandrians always did? I think that's, that hits the, the nail on the head for that point. If you want to take the tradition, strip it down and redress it in another color, don't call it Alexandrian witchcraft and no one would have a problem. Why is it so important to you to be called Alexandrian? That would be my question. Why would you want to be called Alexandrian if you really are not doing anything that resembles what was done and what is done by other groups? Because, you know, when we talk about a tradition, we're talking about a group of people in many places, in different contexts, in different cultures, but they're all united by one practice and one belief, independently of all of the works that each group does, they're having a common thing. That's why we all are called Alexandria, not just because we can trace our lineage back to Alex and Maxine, but also because we have a practice that it's uh, recognizable between all of us. Mm. When somebody practice is unrecognizable to the point of changing initiation rites and changing the, the way that we call the gods or the way that we address the gods, which are very specific for us. For me, it's it's why are you holding to Alexandrian if you're clearly not satisfied with what Alexandrian is? And why would you give up that pool and reservoir of power, like calling out the secret names of our gods? Why would you not want to tap into that? That's been done for five decades at this point by hundreds of Alexandrian covens meeting, right. you know, many times per year calling out those names. Well, we wish them well. We wish them exactly. We wish we wish them well. And it's true. And it's and it again, like this is for seekers. Like these are questions that seekers need to ask. One of the things that I the other the other day I've heard something about traditional gardenerians. Because you know, sometimes you have to come up with with words to define yourself when somebody else is actually so down the road of nowhere yeah. that you have to identify yourself you have to you, you have to add a word to what you are so that you can be differentiated from those who are deep down in the road of nowhere Has, and and you know what i mean so yeah. you know gardenerians did this uh, a group of gardeners just came about and said, you know, enough is enough. We're going to call ourselves traditional gardenerians so that we can differentiate ourselves from inclusive gardenerians. Yeah. It's what they, this is what they call the other, you know, inclusive gardeners. And one of the things that I thought that it was extraordinary, they said, and we're not sure if in the future, inclusive gardenerians are going to be recognized as true gardenerians in the very, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's, of course, they're called fundamentalists and, and this and that, uh, but you need to, ne never gardenerian was a word that was needed to be added to another word to define what they did. From the point of when people begin to Rip down, include everything, changing things to the way they feel that it is convenient for them and that worked for them. 
to the point that is unrecognizable for the rest of the group because there is another group, right, of people that are still doing, you know, what they're supposed to do. Um, we need a word, and they they need the word, uh, and they come up with traditional yeah. guardians, and they call the other ones inclusive guardians. Uh, there is a need if you are going to separate yourself so much and you're holding to the title of or the, the name, you're holding to the name, but you're changing so much. The other group, which is the others that not you, the others, um, th they have to come to the conclusion that they had to add a word to distinguish themselves from you because we're no longer all Alexandrians. Because what you do is a different thing. Yeah. So I have to say, you know, I'm not like, do you remember, Michael, the pagan thing that we said, you know, if you're pagan, well, sometimes I'm pagan, sometimes I'm not, <laughs> depending on the occasion. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the name is important. It is important. I think this is, is uh, so much of this is political because we are living in, a, we're living in a time of where language is being commandeered. Uh, so therefore, words are no longer defined as they've been traditionally defined for you know hundreds of years. And with this, and then this is all under the the claim of coven autonomy as well. So in the sense of yeah, I'll do inside of my coven whatever I I want to do, and you can't tell me otherwise. Which is which is all well and good. Um, however, you need to be honest about what you're doing to those who are who are seeking to become an to seeking to become initiate. I couldn't imagine how horrible it must be. You've received your third degree in Gardnerian or Alexandrian. You've moved, you're joining another coven or, you know, you've been invited to participate. You walk in and you go, what is this? Yeah, what is um, unrecognized? I've never seen this before in my life. And then what all those experiences that you have, and I'm not saying that you wouldn't have still had valid experiences if you were true in your devotion, but... To be able to sit there and go, is my is my third degree even worth anything? I have to relearn all of this. And I mean, you know, we're, we're all practicing witches. We should all be willing to learn all the time. We're not, you know, retired witches. We're practicing witches, no matter what degree you have under your belt. But just, uh, I think it must be a fundamental shock to your system that you've devoted so much time, so much effort, all these things to just find out that somebody's taken what you thought was the craft and butchered it. Yeah. Into something unrecognizable by you and everybody else. I mean, that happened. That actually happened many times to many people that I know. And what did they do? They submit themselves to the wonderful thing, which is, I don't know. I have been trained in a different thing. Let me just retrain. Yeah. Uh, or let me just receive and ask for training or ask for further training. This is what happened. And and we're talking about years of, of people being in something and then coming out of that and then realizing that this is has nothing to do with what was really originally or or that what people do. The reason autonomy is great because you can decide what to do in your own group and it's right. wonderful that it's great. But that cannot be an excuse for you to just detach yourself to the point that we can't really recognize what you do because we're all part of a big group. Alexandrian, it's just not a suggestion. It's a tradition. I, I completely agree with that statement. <laughs> In terms of to your point about imagine going to you know another circle and another Alexandrian circle and not recognizing what you see, and just from speaking from personal personal experience, going into another Alexandrian circle, like, oh, this is very different, uh, ritualist <laughs> ritualistically. But not even that. I think what's telling is is power. Going into another circle, and there's power there, and there's power being raised. Um, and then you're like, oh no, this is not happening. <laughs> And where I to where I just came from, which also then leads into this whole idea of training, and that's the difference between good training and bad training. There are people get F's as grades, and people get A's as grades. There is there are differences, and I would say that's the difference is, is the generating of the magic and the power. Let's just say that there are not all of the teachers are good. No, and not all of the students are good. Nope. So sometimes you can have a wonderful, and not all third degrees should teach. 
because they're not good teachers. Not good teachers. And, and of course, you know, let's recognize this. Some people do have this vocation for teaching and they're extremely good teachers. I mean, rare, rare, absolutely. There's like a couple of them. They're absolutely fantastic. And then there's all of the rest. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, in all of the rest, there is the bad ones that have no, I mean, you're, to, you're talking about bad training. What about none at all? I know. That's even yeah. worse. <laughs> because oh, I have no patience for this. Oh, no, not today. I'm, I'm going to cancel. Nah. And then, of course, you know, this goes on and on and on. When you enter this other group, which is a very disciplined group, a group that it's good at what they do, they're focused, they're, they do the inner work, there is a consciousness in this group that it's incredible, They do that they do deliver the technique, it's there, they have been doing this and training this for years, there is a difference. Absolutely. This shows, it shows, it, you can feel it in your bones, you can feel it everywhere. And then of course, you know, why discard these things that are, that were so generously shared with us and passed down to us to just, we, we have to evolve into this, goodness knows what, um, and then come up with, why reinventing the wheel? It's a system. It's an esoteric and occult system. You don't reinvent occult systems other than, you know, enhancing them. If you're not enhancing, what, what are you doing? And I think this, this comes to um, another point that I just wanted to bring up since it's in the same sort of vein. Ideas of what can and can't be changed in the craft. And I think we touched a little bit on that with the solitary, that if you're working on your own, things are changed out of necessity. Mm -hmm. And that's just a word that I kind of want to hammer home there. Necessity. Mm -hmm. Not, I feel like it or I don't want to. It's a necessary change. Um, like, let's say you have two coven members. You can't run a right with having somebody stand and officiate something, if that makes sense. You have to actively participate. Right. But you are not changing the right itself. You're just changing the parts that need to be played. Somebody would be made to learn their lines by heart instead of standing with the book if their hands need to be busy. And um, just something that I wanted to bring up as well for the, the change in the Southern Hemisphere versus the Northern Hemisphere uh, with the swapping of the Sabbath dates. If you wanted to be terribly persnickety with it, you could say, well, that's changing the craft. Yeah. But again, it's out of necessity. We can't be celebrating winter solstice in the middle of summer. That would make no sense. We have to be very intelligent in the way that we practice the craft. And the challenging thing about this is a sense of purpose. You have to have a sense of purpose in everything that you do in the craft, including your choices uh, uh, on how you go about your own practice. And we need to be conscious about not only ourselves, conscious of self, But you also need to be conscious of the world around you and your environment and maybe nature. Nature is very important for you to listen to what nature is saying to you. And of course, in the South Hemisphere, it's completely different and opposite of what we do. You know, And there's some countries, let's just say, that it's almost imperceptible because they're such in a liminal space between the equators that they are. there's no real... Uh, evident uh, differences um, in terms of, you know, oh, that's clearly winter. You know what I mean? You have to not, you can't be doing llamas. I, I wouldn't say that that is a change. I would say that you are, you're still doing the Sabbaths. You're still doing them in, in the place, in nature, where they are manifesting in your own land. I would say you're adapting it to a different land which is not really changing. It's just putting them in the right place as it feels the emanation of nature on that particular vibration or on that particular land. And, and you're not changing the Sabbath. It was just putting, you're celebrating it in a place where it makes more sense for your land. And, and of course, we have to listen to the land. We have to listen to what nature has to say about this because we are, we are actually doing things according to the cycles of, 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 of nature and uh, of creation. So we're respecting that. Basically, I would say that it's, it's, a, it's an adaptation and kind of putting things in places that they should be rather than imitating. Um, and we should be intelligent. We shouldn't imitate just for imitation. You know that 
that thing about you know you shouldn't copy the book of shadows the the the, the we have more than one book of shadows this is going to be very shocking to people um <laughs> But we do have, and and uh, you know, and we have a coven book, and that coven book shouldn't be um, copied in, in its entirety. The reason why it's because you need to do your own work if you're going to found a new coven. So you you don't want to imitate exactly what your previous coven was doing, and or just reproduce it. It's just because you need to develop your own work, and this comes in because of that that we you know that thing that we said. Covenant autonomy. What is the work that we are developing in covens? This is the the innovation of the work of a coven is not changing what is already established. It's actually developing other things that could enhance that. I definitely agree with it. It's the the addition rather than the subtraction of things, or the snipping of things that are not understood. You know, building up your own coven book, your own practices, rituals that work for you, rituals that don't. Um, even spells that work for you, spells that don't, a specific way to call upon whatever we are working with in our circle or something that we work with often would be different to when you move off and use your own circle. Again, that's not changing the actual book. And I think that's more where this comes in is that people are taking the actual book and just going, nah, I don't like this. Oh, this rule, uh, what, what does it mean in today's life? Just cut it out, move it away. We don't like it. We'll do our own thing. I totally agree. I think when you're developing, you're still in the same stream of the tradition and you're just, it, there's nuances that your rituals will take on. But in, I agree totally. In no way are you going through the Book of Shadows and just, you know, clipping, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that, uh, discard uh, our core practices. And this has to work, right? If you're not going to navigate in the same stream and you're going to go into high C just because you think that it's better than, you know, you're going to be lost. Eventually you will, you know, get caught in the storm. Exactly. You are going to be lost at high C. But a lot of people, all, well, I don't know if a lot of people, but some say that, well, this is what Alex, it was, you know, Alex was a rebel. Uh, Alex went and did change the tradition. And by nature, as Alexandrians, this is what we're supposed to do. But Alex was an incredibly knowledgeable occultist. Like when he was making changes, he knew what he was doing in making certain changes. And I'm not sure everyone is as equipped as Alex, uh, as Alexander's when they're making their changes, probably out of discomfort. When people give the excuse that Alex did it, Alex was a rebel. He changed the Gardnerian tradition, and therefore we can change it as well. Um, they're comparing themselves with Alex, yeah. which for me, it's quite unbelievable. The other piece is he changed consciously. He knew what he was changing, and he had a purpose. Him and Maxine, they have both a purpose. They had a purpose on the changes that they did and why they did them. Uh, and it's interesting to actually see today that the people that are actually taking these things out, they are taking it out, even the things that he changed. And they're just taking this rebel kind of thing about Alex. Yes, he was a rebel, and we all know that he was, uh, and Maxine as well. They were both rebels. But they were rebels with a cause and rebels with very, very fine-tuned to what they wanted to do. And they stick to it. You know, one of the things that I um, uh, actually talked about with Maxine was if there is a couple of things in, in our main book that um, they're clearly Gardnerian things. And of course, you know, we came from Gardnerian, but they are clearly Gardnerian. And one of the questions that I asked her, why? why didn't Alex took them out of the book? Why Why are they there? Why, if they're not even, we, we don't even do that because we're Alexandrian, we don't really do that. And she said, I asked the same question to Alex. And he said to me, the book was given to me like this, I will respect the book. Yeah. Like he was given to me. I might not do those things. I might not take, but I'm not going to take them out. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to take them out and erase them from the book and pass the book incomplete. So there is a respect that Alex had towards the people that gave him 
the book and passing the book. And this is this is really something that I think that it's lacking. It's it's an uttermost disrespect based on we're rebel like Alex was. So I think that the rebel kind of label comes up up again and again and again as an excuse for whatever we want to do, we'll do. With no consequence or with no thinking. I mean, I, I'm sure they think, uh, but, you know, I'm not sure if the thinking is thorough. The other point that I just wanted to go on to was to talk a little bit about the uh, when when people are initiated and they don't take responsibility for themselves in terms of letting the initiators know that they've had trauma, they've had all of these sorts of things happen to them and what we actually need to ask. And, um, you know, before we accept them for the pre sort of read this, do this, do that, and definitely before the initiation. And I mean, sure, we, we ask a whole bunch of things, you know, do you have the time? Are you stable? Do you have um, work? Do you have your own transport? And it, it really sounds, I think, quite bizarre to people outside of the craft that those are the questions that are asked of them when they, when they seek initiation. But um, it's it's to safeguard everybody involved, obviously, because we don't expect seekers to know all the ins and outs. However, it, it also comes down to there are things that people that are taking on the responsibility of requesting initiation need to take responsibility for. And I mean, that's one of the reasons that we say, you know, when you request your initiation, you need to specifically say, I am requesting initiation. It's about that will. And, you know, there's there's certain things that people should kind of have the the thinking of disclosing. So, for instance, you know, drug abuse, alcoholism, if there's been any trauma in the past. And if they've read craft books, again, like What Witches Do or Fire Child, I'm, I'm very confused as to how they wouldn't know that there would be triggers in the initiation right. I mean, it's quite clearly laid out there. It is. It is. And, and you know, we talked about this, Michael, the other day because of that incident that that person had, that she was abused by her father at some point in her life when she was a little girl or whatever it was. And uh, somehow the initiation triggered that. Uh, experience again. This is the thing I've, and I mentioned this before. We find ourselves now asking questions to people that nobody thought about asking before because this is our experience. There's a whole lot of consciousness now onto trauma and previous trauma, alcoholism, etc. I totally agree with you. It's there. If we read books on the craft, Wine is mentioned many times. Mm -hmm. You would, you would, I would think, okay, so, uh, hey, I, I've heard that there's wine. I'm a, an alcoholic. Is that a problem if I don't drink wine? That would be something that I would ask. And I mean, obviously they've read it because one of the questions that always get hammered on from people, and like, I do understand it was also one of my biggest worries before I was initiated, was like, oh, that was silly. I was worrying about that, was the, the spyclet. So obviously they've read the stuff if they're coming up with, oh, but um, I, I see that rituals are done skyclad and, you know, do we have to? That's, that's definitely something that they bring up. So why not the rest? We're, we're living in, and again, this is, as you said, right, Kerrigan, like this, these are questions that are being asked that we would not have asked, you know, probably in the 1980s or the 1970s, because we're living in an age about, of consent where there are some hairstylists who will ask you first before cutting your hair, may I touch you? And I would love to see a hairstylist cut your hair without touching you. We're, we're based on this, like, you know, one enter my space without my permission. And you bring up veiled priestess. You bring up a really good uh, point. How much do you disclose without then compromising the oaths that you have taken mm -hmm. to someone who has not been initiated? And I absolutely agree with you. If you are reading all of these witchcraft books on British traditional Wicca, you should 
know what some of these initiate rights look like. And I'm not saying that they're accurate, but you should know what, what some of these initiates look like. And you should be sort of, okay, I guess I could go through that, or I guess I could go through that, or guess how I, I could go through, um, I could go through that. But witchcraft is uncomfortable. I think it's uncomfortable for the most, I don't know, level-headed, stable person that enters the craft that you will be put into a, an uncomfortable space. I ask questions like, do you have any health issues that could prevent you to drink wine, dance vigorously, and going up and down on your knees? I ask, what is your threshold for pain? Or is it a zero? <laughs> do you bleed a lot? <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I do. I do ask these questions. And then, of course, I ask them, do you have any psychological issues that you had in the past or still having? Are they being managed? Do you know, are you in control of? Are you being medicated? Yeah. <laughs> no, really. Yeah, no, but it's Sorry. true. It is yeah. true. All of this that we ask is to protect the person. Absolutely. Because we're already in. Mm -hmm. We're already practicing. This is to protect the person. If the person says to me, you know, I can't drink wine because I'm an alcoholic, I can't even see it because I will have a relapse. I will say, I'm sorry, we can't really take you yeah, because there will be wine. Yeah. And, you know, taking that wine away because one person cannot drink it or see it is depriving all of the other initiates of the experience of the, of the mystery of the wine and it putting that person in at risk of relapsing. So I'd rather say, I'm sorry, I don't think this is for you. This this coven might not be for you. Because, you know, then we begin to accommodate. I have issues with my body. Everybody has issues. Every exactly everybody has issues. <laughs> right? just, you know, oh I have a toe that it's like crooked or whatever. Exactly. I mean everybody has the thing. So and of course, you know, sky clad is really not being naked it's more than that so so of course you know people sometimes don't understand this one of the very good thing and i was criticized by actually a priestess that i initiated about this don't talk about skyclad because people will be very you know we shouldn't be talking about skyclad i think we should because this is one of the hang-ups that, that people have um that it's you know they, they have no idea about why we do it so we might as well say why we do it and people will be informed. If they're, it's not for them, it's not for them. That's great. So you might want to go away and resolve your nudity issues. But if you have a challenge and you see that that is, it's part of this, then wonderful because, you know, it is up to you to go through it and see if you can actually survive <laughs> the experience. <laughs> you know, it's just very, it's, this is what initiations are. Yeah. These are things that you have to work in yourself and, yeah. and you have to go. Well, I must say it, it was a very big worry for me to start off with. Um, I mean, before I was initiated, I was one of those people that would get changed in a gym with my towel on me. But once initiated and within the circle, that worry falls away completely. And I think it's a very big difference to kind of quote between the sacred and the profane. Um, the sacredness of the circle kind of strips you of that. And it's not a it's not a problem I've had since joining the craft in circle. I mean, I'm, I obviously would still give a, a funny look at people if they said to me go to a nude beach, but within the sanctity <laughs> of the circle and within the practices that we do, Spy Club was no longer an issue, and it hasn't been since that day. The experience of Sky Clad, it's we're not you know, and when we when you talk about Sky Clad and people ask you, well, what is that, and then you say, oh, it's ritual nudity. The moment that nudity comes up, they will put this word and the meaning of the word into a context of, of course, has to be, of mundane. Mm -hmm. It's not inside of the circle. It's not because they don't have that experience yet. So they, they won't have that piece. So what they understand about this is nudity outside of the circle. And that's their experience, either in the shower, in bed, whatever it is, that's their significant, you know, of the word. So the meaning 
that it takes. It's totally incomplete. And it doesn't matter how much you explain to them. Well, it's in the sacred circle. It's different. It's, we feel different. It's just the experience will give you that particular change. You won't know until you just experience it in that particular environment. So when people ask us this uh, and we explain to them, it's kind of difficult to convey because it is an experiential thing. You, You have to be experiencing this inside of the circle to understand that it's actually not what they feel that it is outside. And unfortunately with the craft, because there are so many things that need to be experienced, not stated. I think it's difficult to convey to people the meaning behind what we do. But that is all that part of you need to have trust. And without trust and that want to be able to change and challenge yourself, what are you doing asking for initiation? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And this is why we like to have a priestess. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's yes. just the, it's like it's contemporary issues of the body, which I which didn't necessarily exist, you know, historically and in all and in all cultures, where it's the like sort of the ultimate vulnerability mixed with this sort of hypersexualization of the nude um, body. So people come into it with these kinds of terrible pre- preoccupations, but I totally agree with the veiled priestess that that just goes it really does it goes all away in the context of sacred space and there's a whole tradition in renaissance art that shows this the mundane is clothed and the sacred is nude it's, it, it is it is really tapping into something cosmic right it's tapping into something universal maybe when we talk about skyclad in another episode when we talk about the basics it's to search for meanings in all of these things in art and in other places. Nudity in the 70s was not really the same as now. Different. So because we evolved in this notion of nudity that they had no problem whatsoever at that time, Um, probably in some cultures they would, but generally speaking at the time, all of those movements, freedom was the word. And of course, freedom of everything, including clothes, which I'm remembering Woodstock. And of course, but the fact that the society parallel to, to this society has evolved in a different way in terms of giving a significance uh, for this particular word, but the craft has maintained this particular thing because it's not mundane, it's actually occult waste. So of course we, 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 uh, we, we maintain it because it, it's part of what we do and how we do it and, and why we know it. it it's parallel. So the, the one ev- evolves into this thing and then one maintains the same because it's, of course, works. It works. We're not changing it. Works. Uh, I would like to ask you both a question. Uh, what about initiations uh, with without being skyclad? Would you, would you accommodate that? What, what would be the reason for you to present and say, actually, we can't really do that, not just because it's done, but what would be the reason why you would think that it would be necessary to be skyclad? Without trying to give too much away, it is yeah. to do with rebirth. It is that death and resurrection of self in a new life in a new way. Do you, Are you born clothed? Or are we taking it back to that innocence that is really, in my experience, the root of the crop? that innocence, that joy, that revelry. And again, I think changing the initiation rites is changing the person being initiated's experience. And it's so difficult to say any of this without giving anything away. Um, But just the, the beauty of my own initiation would have been dull. That, that shock when you open your eyes and you're a witch. Yeah. would have been dulled if not all of that mundane had been stripped, if not those trials had been gone through. And I mean, the Skyclad's not the only trial. There's the challenge. There's so many things. There's the waiting blindfolded before you even do anything, um, you know, before anybody even comes to get you. The the calling of the names and things like that while you're walking and all of these things built up the experience to such a life-changing and profound moment 
that I think subtracting anything from that without damn good reason would really just be cheating the person being initiated. I totally agree. And and how can I get around this? It is part of the mystery. There is a mystery there. And I would also argue that the opposite sex initiation, there is a mystery there. And to take those away, you have lost that mystery, which has to be experienced. And that is why, no, I would not initiate robed. And I can't think of an accommodation that would call for that. Otherwise, you, I'm so sorry, not not my coven. So, but there are other other paths, or maybe other other covens that can accommodate you. Again, if there is a medical reason or something like that, but it's passing, then just move up the initiation date. I once refused to be part of an initiation because the high priest of that coven agreed to initiate somebody with the rope. I said, I'm not doing it, not participating in it. I'm not doing it. Eventually, the person then agreed to be sky clouds. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. But I still didn't go. Um, and, and the reason why I didn't go, it's not because, oh, you know, I'm just like, I don't go. I'm not going. It's just, it, it was such a, such a drained thing to try to explain to this high priest why would it be you know that that person was not in that way you know so i i think it, it you shouldn't be doing this right <laughs> they should know already that this is there is a mystery like you say michael there is a mystery there is an experience like you said mm -hmm. um, and you know if if it isn't I mean, but fortunately, other than initiations, we do have the choice. But, you know, initiations are to be done spec-clad. And uh, some people have difficulties with that. Then they should just resolve their difficulties before they come to the threshold of the temple. And again, I think this all comes back to the idea of accommodation. And to be completely frank, I think accommodation could only be brought in once a person has been initiated and has worked the craft. So, for instance, let's say somebody's worked the craft for 40 years, they can no longer kneel. They are now a 78-year-old person. If they choose to sit in a chair or a throne, for instance, surely that kind of an accommodation would be made. Or like, let's say somebody that has uh, become pregnant, they obviously they won't be expected to drain a chalice full of wine. But that accommodation is for witches that are working. You can't come in and expect the craft to change for you. Allowances can be made in certain aspects, but also things that are passing or things that are unavoidable. Yeah.